0: That I'm on. Yep, there we go. Won't you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter four? Uh, we're going to be reading together Revelation chapter four. Uh, I had told Matt uh, earlier on in the week or last week um, that I was planning to do Revelation four and five today. Um, but in my preparation for the sermon, um, I ran out of time at the end of chapter 4. So we're just going to stop um, at the end of chapter 4 this morning, and we'll pick up with chapter 5 uh, the next time that we uh, are able to look at this together. So please let's read together in our Bibles uh, Revelation chapter 4 and reading from verses 1 to 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat There had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And by your will, they existed and were created. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, and we have prayed uh, that the Lord would be pleased to, to add his blessing to both the reading and the preaching of it this morning. So we, we resume our our studies in the book of Revelation today in a, I would say, less than ideal way. Um, because we are going to be jumping from the end of chapter 1 Uh, which we looked at last, or we got to last time, and we're going to be jumping all the way to the beginning of chapter 4. And and that is because we spent eight weeks uh, last year looking in some detail at the end of the year at chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia. And I think many people get themselves into all kinds of trouble and confusion in chapters 4 to 22 of Revelation, Because they create a massive disconnect between the first three chapters, what's gone before in the first three chapters, and and that which follows in the rest of the book. And I think we are potentially at risk to do the same thing today if I don't quickly remind you that chapters 1 to 3 is meant to flow directly into uh, chapter 4. So please... Uh, Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 1, and remember that the book opens with these words. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And look down at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, turn with me to the very last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. Um, And let's see what John says at the very end of the book, which you will see is almost identical to what he has said at the beginning. Look at chapter 22, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And so I hope you can see that it's clear that Jesus intended, John intended for this whole book to be read as a single book not to be kind of artificially divided or compartmentalized so that some parts of the book are are limited to people in the past and other parts of the book are exclusively for people in the future. No, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the servants of Jesus Christ to reveal the things that must soon take place. And so we see that the book starts off in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, if you want to go back there, uh, being addressed very specifically and personally to a group of Christians who existed at that time in seven local congregations across Asia Minor. We read in chapter 1 verse 4, John, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Now it is crucial that we keep these opening verses in mind as the interpretive framework for the rest of the book which follows. This book was written to strengthen and encourage suffering and persecuted Christians living between the first coming of Jesus, that's verse 5, and the second coming of Jesus, that's verse 7. And all Christians, starting with those to whom the book was originally written to, and all those who come to saving faith in Christ between the two comings, we are those who verse 5 and 6 says, We are loved by Jesus. We've been set free from our sin by his blood. We have been made into a kingdom and priests to serve God who is forever praised. It is without doubt that the whole book of Revelation is written to the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. We'll see that again in chapter 5 verse 10. You'll see in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 the same terminology that John uses here being descriptive of us as the church. And so at its simplest level, the book of Revelation is a book that is being given to all Christians living between the first and the second coming of Christ. And it's a book to encourage us in our faith and our love for God. And it's a book to to remind us that that we are living in a world which is coming to an end, in which all the wicked on this earth will be judged and destroyed. Verse 7 is a powerful summary of this twofold nature of Christ's return. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. John says, to those who are his, he's writing to the churches, those who, who are loved by Jesus, he says, We are the ones who are to eagerly anticipate his coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him. There's a a tone of great excitement and, and expectation for the Lord's return. But then he says, even those who pierced him will see his return. And for them, for those who are not part of his kingdom, they will wail on account of his return. For that same return which is a glorious expectation for the believer, is the great and glorious day of judgment uh, in which God will destroy the unbeliever. And so with that introduction, John then writes to these seven congregations. And and we saw last year that that each one, Jesus knew everything about them. He knew that, that those who were Unfaithful in some way or another, we we saw Jesus calling them to repentance. And if they did not repent, Jesus pronounced very specific judgments on them. Judgments which we will see will be repeated and expanded on in, in the chapters ahead multiple times. But then we saw in those seven letters that to those who conquer, to those who repent and remain faithful to Jesus, he promises them Great rewards, rewards which will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we studied those seven letters to the seven churches last year, we saw that as much as each letter was was written to a specific congregation in a specific historical and geographic location, nevertheless, as with all of God's word, the seven letters were addressed to us at Honeyridge in 2021 and now in 2022. And the same call uh, of repentance that went out to those churches went out to us in our sinfulness and failings as a church. And the same promises that went out to those churches, if they remained faithful, were given to us if we repent and remain faithful to Jesus Christ in this season of our earthly existence. Now we need to remember that that most if not all of those early churches were facing severe persecution and suffering for the name of Christ. John himself was most likely the last living apostle uh, and he was imprisoned on this remote island of, of Patmos for his faith. And so you can right, uh, quite rightly understand that that the believers at the time must have started to doubt all that they believed. Doubting perhaps even the very promises of Jesus. Remember that John, who's who's writing here, he had heard in person the promise that Jesus made to his disciples in John 14. He writes this down for us. In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you may be where I am also. Wonderful promises, wonderful words of Jesus. But that was 60 years ago. 60 years. What happened to Jesus after his ascension? Did he perhaps get to heaven and God had changed the plan? Was he really going to come back? And, and what would happen to all those who then died between his ascension and his return? Because people were dying. John was the last apostle left. Would they still receive the promises of Jesus or would they be lost forever? And what about all the evil that seemed to just be prevailing in the world? It, it was getting worse and worse. Would the forces of evil ultimately prevail and destroy the church? And if so, then was their persecution and their suffering in vain? Did Jesus not care about all the wicked and the evil in the world? Why do the wicked prosper and carry on in their evil violence unpunished? Does God not see? Or if he does see, is he unable to do anything about it? These were the very real questions which must have gripped the minds and the hearts of those early Christians. These are the same questions which have gripped Christians throughout the ages of history And these may be the same questions that are gripping your own heart uh, as you sit here today. Where is God? Where are the promises that Jesus made? And so what a comfort, what a blessing it must have been to those early Christians to receive this message from heaven itself, a message from the risen Jesus to answer all their questions, to give his people encouragement and hope that Jesus is faithful that Jesus is the the sovereign creator, he's the conquering king, he's the savior of the world, and he is the righteous judge. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing will thwart his plans and his purposes for the church. Because as we saw last time, in the end, the lamb wins. And so as we studied the, the letters to the seven churches, let me just remind you, of the incredible words of promise, of comfort that Jesus gave to his people who remained faithful to him. And I'm going to just read the the last sentence of each of the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will grant you the crown of life, and you will not be hurt by the second death. I will give you the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. I will give you authority over the nations, and I will give you the morning star. I will give you white garments, and I will never blot your name out of the book of life, and I will confess your name before my Father and the angels. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will always be in my presence, and I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the new Jerusalem and even my own new name, and I will grant you to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so with all those incredible promises and confirmations of hope which John gives to the seven churches, we, we come then to the end of the first cycle of the vision. As we remember on that little diagram uh, from last week, if you've still got it in your Bible, um, the clicker is not working, thanks John, just go on to the next slide there, um, so, so we've got the diagram. We, we've now come to the end of the first cycle of the vision. That's chapter 3, verse 22. And... It started with Jesus' first coming in verse 5. It covers the entire church age throughout history, and it ends with Christ's second coming in chapter 1, verse 7. And all the promises that I've just read to the one who conquers are promises that, yes, we perhaps have a glimpse of some of them in this life, but they are primarily promises which find their fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. And so you might be wondering with those early Christians, well, that's wonderful, that's truly encouraging, but how? How, John, do these words and these promises of Jesus square up with what we actually see going on in the world around us? How are we to understand all that Jesus has promised in the face of all this evil and all the suffering and all the persecution and all the brokenness in the world? And, and John says, I'm glad you asked, because wait, there's more. There's a lot more. And so it begins the second cycle of John's vision, which takes us up into the very throne room of heaven to see firstly the the truth about God and Jesus, and then to understand all of history as it unfolds from God's perspective. And so we are going to spend our time in the first half of that little box there this morning. Revelation chapter 4. Next time we'll look at Revelation chapter 5 and then we're going to look at the seven seals and and what they signify in terms of the unfolding of God's plan in history. Thanks, Sean. You can just go back to the the, the plain slide again. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just keep that in mind this morning. You don't need to look at the diagram uh, again. That's just to try and put you in the scene that we are now back um, at the beginning, and we are now in the second cycle. Um, and so Revelation chapter 4 follows on directly from the vision to the seven churches. But now we have the second cycle. We, as as the illustration I used last time, we really now have the next layer of color and and texture on the canvas of this painting of Revelation, giving us, as it were, in this case, an insight really into the, the throne room of heaven, into the artist's studio, to understand from his big picture perspective the meaning of the painting, so that we can begin to grasp and understand the events that are unfolding in our world and in our history. And so chapter 4 verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet back in chapter 1 said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so Jesus himself summons John into heaven with a specific purpose to to show John the things that must take place after this. And and please note the same time marker is used as we saw back in chapter 1 verse 1. It is to show the servants of Christ the things that must take place after this or soon take place. It's exactly the same uh, phrase that Jesus uses now as John is caught up into heaven. Now verse 2 tells us that he is taken up in his spirit into heaven and he sees certain things which these two chapters then describe. Now before we look at these chapters, I must just mention two important things about how we understand this kind of apocalyptic uh, literature or genre or vision. The first is this. The minute that John enters into the spiritual realm of heaven, the things that he sees... Although they are described to us in terms of physical realities, the physical realm, these things that he sees are not physical. John is describing spiritual realities by the only means possible through the physical things that he knows of on earth. But these are not meant to be understood, these heavenly things are not meant to be understood as literal physical objects or beings but rather they are meant to be understood in terms of the spiritual realities to which they signify. And we're going to see this more clearly in a moment and as we work our way through Revelation. So please keep that in mind. We are are talking about spiritual realities being described in physical earthly language. But secondly, we must remember also that God is eternal that God exists outside of time, or at least he exists outside of time uh, as we understand it in an earthly sense. And so we must be very careful when we interpret the visions that John sees to impose our earthly time system onto the visions of heaven. Because in doing so, we forget that God transcends time And we're going to get ourselves into all kinds of trouble if we try to allocate everything that John sees in the visions to an earthly timeline. I think this is one of the simple mistakes that I believe people often make when trying to read the whole book of Revelation as if it were historical narrative, as if it was one chronological earth-based timeline of future events. Because if you do that, you end up with multiple judgment days, multiple returns of Jesus, and all other problems which I think miss the main point in application of Revelation. And things which then don't square up with the rest of Scripture. So please notice the continuity between the end of chapter um, 3 and chapter 4. It's quite striking. Jesus says to the very last church of the seven churches, that's the church of Laodicea, that to those who conquer, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And then chapter 4, immediately John is taken up into, into heaven, and what does he say in verse 2? At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, A throne a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, just in case you are are not sure of what the main point of this glimpse into heaven is all about, John is going to mention the throne of God 17 times in these two chapters. And he does so nine times in the next few verses. Now, it's very important because if we lose sight of the throne, we miss the whole point of the chapter. And we will certainly then misinterpret all the lesser details that are being described by John in his vision. Now, everything in chapter 4, and taking both chapter 4 and chapter 5 together as a unit, it must be understood in relation to the throne of God. So please keep that in mind. So let's start there. What then does the throne represent? I think it's quite simple. It represents the the sovereign rule and reign of God Almighty over all of the universe, over all creatures, great and small, over both the, the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, and the physical realm, because God is the one who created everything. By his sovereign will and purpose alone, he brought everything into existence out of nothing. Now before we consider some of the details of this vision, I need you to see the purpose for the vision. The the purpose for all the details, it is to inspire worship. If the throne of God is the dominant object of this vision, and it certainly is, then the worship of God is the dominant action. The first thing we notice as we consider the scene in heaven is that heaven is not empty. Heaven is filled with beings. Firstly, we see 24 uh, angelic elders sitting on 24 thrones, wearing white garments and Golden crowns. Then we have four living creatures, very strange creatures flying around, uh, each with six wings and their whole bodies in front and behind are are covered with eyes. One has the face of a lion, one has the face of an ox, one has the face of a human, the other has the face of of an eagle. And then if you glance ahead to chapter 5, verse 11, we see that beyond this inner circle, there is this great multitude of angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands times ten thousands. And then beyond that, in chapter 5, verse 13, we are told that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and the sea and all that is in them is there. Now, it's not that the details of, of all of these heavenly beings is unimportant. We'll, we'll get to consider some of those in a moment. But we must not lose sight of the fact that all of these amazing creatures in heaven are united in one purpose, which is to worship the Lord God who sits on the throne. Each description of a new group Of beings all describes them doing exactly the same thing. They are worshiping God. Now, if this is the main point of the vision in heaven, can you imagine walking up to one of those creatures and saying, excuse me, sir, it's so good to be here, but I was just wondering, can you tell me why you have eyes all over your body? To do that would be to totally miss the point. The point is is being shouted out at us in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then John goes on to describe the scene around the throne, this worship of God. It's it's all-encompassing. Look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, what happens then? Well, then the 24 elders bow down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their golden crowns before the throne. Saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so, coming back to the church then, the early church, and, and to us now. Jesus wants John to convey this this vision that God is the sovereign creator of all things and everything in all the universe is under his rule from the stars and the planets and the galaxies to every creature that lives on the earth and yes, even to your mother-in-law. Everyone is under the sovereign rule of our God. And the resounding message of Revelation 4 is that this Creator God is worthy of all our worship. Only He is worthy of all glory and honor and power because He made it all. He made you, He made me, and He is worthy of our worship. Just a a quick detour here. Please notice in verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11, the reason why all of these heavenly beings worship God. It says, for, because you created all things. Now, this verse is a real problem to those who would teach some kind of theistic evolution whereby they say that God basically just initiated the the Big Bang and then left the world to be created through billions of years of random evolutionary mutations. Oh no, says John, all the angels, all the heavenly creatures ascribe all glory and honor and power and praise to God Because he created all things, and by his will, they existed. They came into being and were created. So now that we have the big picture, detour is over. Um, Big picture clearly established, I hope. Let's consider now some of the the details in John's vision in their proper place. Notice in verse 3 that John doesn't actually describe God the Father. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like us, the Westminster Confession says, and, and he cannot be described by anything he has made. On the contrary, we are forbidden to seek to try and describe God by any form of human object. That's idolatry. And so all that John can do as he looks at the throne is to describe the glory which he sees radiating from the presence of God. And he does so by means of the most beautiful and valuable jewels and precious stones that he could describe. Are we meant to go and figure out why he used this stone and not that stone and what color the stones were? I don't think we are. I think John was using the terms of richness and jewels and and precious value to describe the glory. There is some significance perhaps to the stones, but again, Their purpose is to radiate the glory of God. Look at verse 5. There's certainly a lot of symbolism going on here. Look at what John sees and hears. In verse 5, we are told that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, this is significant from an Old Testament perspective because thunder and lightning usually points to God's judgment. And so John uses here the very specific language of the Exodus where God came down on Mount Sinai to give his people the Ten Commandments and we are told that there was thunder and lightning and the people were terrified for being consumed by the holiness of God. This God on the throne, we are told in verse 8, is holy, holy, holy. That should take you straight back to Isaiah chapter 6, the vision that Isaiah had and the holiness of God in that vision caused Isaiah to cry out for fear of his life because he said, I'm a sinner living amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the, the holy God, the Lord of hosts. And so John's vision of God on this throne is one which is saturated with, with Old Testament imagery, Very similar language that we find in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel of a a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, who brings judgment on the sinful and the wicked of the earth. Now with that in mind, notice how amazing is this vision of of God in verse 3 where John reports that around the throne there was a rainbow. A shiny, emerald-hued rainbow. You see, the the God on the throne is not just the creator, as we saw in verse 11. He's not just the holy judge of verse 8 and verse 5. He is also the covenant-keeping God of salvation, who promised that he would never destroy the world again by means of a flood. Every time you and I see the rainbow in the sky, we are meant to recall the reality of the gospel. We deserve to be wiped out, every one of us. Yet God provided a way of salvation for all who turned to him for refuge. And so the comfort of this vision to the persecuted Christians of Asia is the same comfort that we receive today. The sovereign creator is on the throne. He is ruling and he is reigning as the holy and righteous judge. And all wickedness will be destroyed But he is also the God of grace. And his steadfast covenant love extends to generations of those who put their trust in him. Now what are we meant then to understand by the 24 elders and the four living creatures? And again here, please remember that these are not physical creatures. They are symbolic of spiritual truths spiritual realities. And so while we cannot be sure here, uh, it is generally accepted that the elders represent the people of God on earth as the church. Whether it's the 12 Old Testament patriarchs and the 12 New Testament apostles, or whether this is some special order of angels in heaven, we, we cannot be sure. But it does seem clear that they represent all of the church of God on Earth, I would argue that these are, the, and are, are these are angelic beings. As we saw in chapter 2 and chapter 3, each church had an angel, an angel who represents that church before God in heaven. So it would seem that the, the best understanding of these 24 elders are angelic beings who represent the entire people of God in the presence of God. This comes out quite clearly in chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, where these 24 elders refer to those who have been purchased by God as them, not us. So if they were physical representatives, of the, or if they were the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs, they would say us. But they speak about the church as them. And so uh, I think we are safest to assume that these are angelic representations uh, of the church here on earth. Similarly, the four living creatures represent all the created world. We have the lion as the head of the wild beasts. We have the ox as the head of the domesticated animals. We have the eagle as the head of all the flying creatures. And we have the human as the pinnacle of all God's creation. And we are told that there are four on each side of the throne, which speaks of north, south, east, and west, covering the four corners of the earth. And and again, we, we must not get all tied up in the details, because taken as a whole, we see the four living creatures representing all of God's general creation, and we see the 24 elders representing all of God's special creation, his chosen covenant people, the church, And the point of the whole chapter is that all of creation, generally speaking, the created world, and specially speaking of the church, they surround the throne and worship him who sits on the throne. The scene which John describes, I think, is echoed throughout the Psalms and. And Matt read to us Psalm 150 this morning. Go back and read that again and you'll see the general description of creation worshiping God and then the special description of God's people worshiping God being echoed in Psalm 150. Now there are just two more things which John describes in his vision of the throne. One is quite simple to understand and the other is a little bit more difficult. In verse 5 we read that, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So the simple one is the the, the burning seven torches of fire. Because John tells us that this image represents the Holy Spirit. We've already seen this reference to the Holy Spirit back in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. As John describes the triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he uses the exact same description as he does here. The seven spirits who are before the throne. But it's also, I think, important just on this to notice in our theology of the Trinity to see that all the living creatures around the throne fall down and worship God who sits on the throne. But the description of the Holy Spirit is this seven-branched candlestick flaming of fire in the midst of the throne right before the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is not a creature who bows down and worships God, for he is at the very center of the throne in the presence of God who is being worshiped. And we will see later on in chapter 5 that Jesus Christ himself is also worshiped as God. So we have a wonderful glimpse into the Trinity here. And then lastly, John says that before the throne there was this sea of glass like crystal. This one's a little bit more difficult because there are various Old Testament allusions which could be referred to here in this symbol of the crystal sea. Uh, Number one, it could refer to the incredibly pure and holy and valuable and precious nature of God. Glass in those days was not commonplace like we have today, clear Um, And so anything like crystal, that was crystal clear, was super valuable, very expensive, almost the value that we would assign to a diamond today. And so John could simply be referring to the fact that the, the throne room, the floor of heaven, was made out of diamonds. That would give the same kind of impression. What does a diamond do? It reflects the light. It reflects the glory and the value of God, which is a fitting description then of the one who sits on the throne to have the floor uh, of his throne room made out of diamonds or crystal. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation says, well, hang on, this scene in heaven has a great similarity to Solomon's temple. And so surely this is referring then to the large, what we call bronze sea in Solomon's temple, which held about 2,000 baths of water, 44,000 liters And this sea was used by the priests for all kinds of ceremonial washings and and cleansings. And so there is a view which says that this crystal sea in John's vision, this represents the purifying, the, the washing power of God. Since all that exists in heaven is pure and all that enters into heaven must be purified through washing. So that's the second option. And the third option is that there's also an Old Testament reference multiple times to the sea being a place of of chaos and destruction, often associated with evil and the forces of evil. And we're going to see that even in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, where this dragon's ally, one of the beasts, actually comes out from the sea. And so this view takes the view that says that Also from the parallel section in chapter 15, that this crystal sea represents God's final destruction and victory over evil. That the sea, which represents chaos and evil, has been subdued and is now calm and peaceful like crystal. So which interpretation is correct? Well, here we need to put the principle To the test and ask the question, which interpretation supports the main point of the vision? If the main point of the vision is all about the praise and the worship of the holy God who sits on the throne and rules over all things, judging the wicked and showing grace to the righteous, then I think that you can see that all three interpretations do that. Or maybe we should say that all three interpretations together. Accomplish that most fully. The crystal sea, like diamond, magnifies and intensifies the glory of God who sits on the throne. The crystal sea represents the massive ocean of God's cleansing power to take away our sin. And so this magnifies God as our gracious Savior. And the crystal sea as a representation that all the forces of evil have been subdued and destroyed. This magnifies God as our righteous judge who will not allow sin to go unpunished. The end result, I hope, is clear. Everything in John's vision is about worshiping God who sits on the throne. The creator, the judge, and the savior. So as I said, I had planned to do chapter 5 today, but we're going to stop here. You'll have to come back next time to get the second half of this incredible vision uh, of God in His heavenly throne. But I just want to close today by asking what we are meant to take away from this vision of chapter 4. How are we meant to apply this passage to our daily lives as we go out into Johannesburg in 2022? I think the most important lesson that you and I can learn from Revelation chapter 4 is this. It's not about you. It's not about me. Isn't this a much needed corrective in our selfie obsessed world? where, Where children are literally born from the womb, being taught and confirmed in their me centered view of the world. Everything revolves around me. Well, John comes to a generation of Christians who were worried that perhaps they were not part of God's plan, perhaps that God had forgotten them, that their lives had no purpose, and he shows them this incredible vision of God, enthroned above the canopy of the universe, reigning on the throne of glory as the creator, and every living creature in heaven and on earth bowing down in worship of him who sits on the throne. Oh, how we need a fresh reminder of this perspective today. Our God reigns. He sits enthroned above the canopy of the earth, and all history is about Him. But then I think secondly, I would propose that this scene around the throne in heaven does include you and me in a very personal way. It includes you and me either as the recipient of God's holy judgment in the in the flashings of lightning and peals of thunder, or it includes you and me as the recipients of his salvation under that covenant banner of the rainbow of his grace. So if you are a Christian here today, and so I'm speaking particularly to Christians now, then you and I are even more personally drawn into this vision because as we saw earlier, the 24 elders represent us. They represent the church of God throughout the ages. And these angelic beings are our symbolic representatives in heaven. And look at what they are doing in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before Him, saying... Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, I fear that there are some of you here today who call yourselves Christians, and yet you are simply deluded by deception. This vision of God today has meant nothing to you this morning you really don't get what it's all about. 40 minutes talking about some vision in heaven. Come on, we've got better things to do with our time. Perhaps you don't even understand what the lightning and the thunder means for you. My prayer for you today is that God would awaken you to see yourself as he sees you, as a desperate sinner in need of a great vision of a holy God that he would shine the, the light of his glory into your heart, that he would lift the veil of darkness and bring you to repentance. But then I think there are others of you today who genuinely are Christians. You've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, but as you consider this vision today, you are distracted by the details. You are so busy arguing about the details in the vision, you've already started typing your email to me in your head as the sermon has been going on that you've missed the wood for the trees. You've missed the fact that all the heavenly creatures and all the true children of God are totally caught up with God. And so you're missing out on having your soul enraptured by His glory and His grace. And so you are in a dangerous place today because the devil loves to keep God's people distracted. Anything which can take your eyes off his glory and his purposes in this world, that's a win for Satan. And so I pray that you would be aware of his schemes and you would return your focus to the center of the throne of God's glory. And then finally today, I pray that for most of us, we would be those in the third category who are delighting in devotion to this God. There's still so much that we need to learn from this book, which is meant for us to to live and grow and persevere as Christians in this world. But unless we get this first lesson in place today, we're going to miss out on all that is still to come. We were made to worship God. We were saved to be devoted to this God. So I end with a question. Do the 24 elders who fall down before this God, delighting in Him so much that they throw all their crowns at His feet. Do they truly represent you and me here today? Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, how we must marvel at your condescension to give John this vision of glory for our benefit. Lord, we must confess that if it were not for these glimpses that you gave to Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and now John into the very throne room of heaven to understand something of of your glory and your holiness and and your magnificence and your grace, We would be people who would be so earthly bound, we would be of no heavenly good. And so, Lord, we want to pray that you would lift our eyes, lift our eyes from all the troubles, all the struggles, all the burdens, all the heartaches, all the pleasures, all the distractions of this world, and that we would behold our God seated on the throne of glory, a righteous judge and a gracious Savior, and that we as your people would truly be those who worship you as the 24 elders do, as the four living creatures do, worship you every day by offering up our lives as a living sacrifice, that everything that we do would be about bringing glory and honor to your name. Help us as we ponder on these things. Help us as we go and read it again in our own quiet times this week. Help us to meditate on your glory and your majesty. And as we draw closer to you, we pray that we too would begin to shine and radiate and reflect the glory of God into this desperately dark world that needs to see Jesus. So we ask this for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.